Friday, the last one we'll see in this month. It is the 26th. It is 2007. And with us today uh, is Alan Watt for a second time this month. And um, um, we haven't really talked too much about what we're going to do. He doesn't seem to mind so much, and we know we've got questions and comments from you folks, so there's plenty to do today, and there's something that was pressing on my mind that I'd like to address also that I kind of alluded to uh, when I was talking with Alan a a while ago. So anyway, from Canada, we want to welcome you. How you doing, Alan? I'm doing pretty good, considering the temperature. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I know. You you know you've got to get any sympathy here, but... I know. It's 30 below this morning. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Global warming, as George Carlin said, my ass. <laughs> well, when you stop spraying, we go back to a normal temperature. And that's just it. It didn't spray last night, so we got a normal night for this time of year. Um, on Monday, I'm going to talk about, I'm also going to air some phone calls between myself and the county sheriff's department. Um, probably with a, with a much better outcome than you had with your helicopters. Uh, we were overflown last week for an hour between 3.30 a.m. and 3, uh, 4, 4 4.30 a.m. Uh-huh. Uh, rather discomforting, but um, it wasn't me, so they weren't looking for me. I waved to them, though, mm-hmm. with the little infrared. I wonder if I could see from my bathrobes. <laughs> yeah, well, sure, there it is, your house. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now, uh, first up, uh, regarding kind of current events, um, I'm sure you remember this. Were, were you uh, stateside, or, or rather North uh, American side, uh, back in um, 70? I I was in both countries back and forth. Uh, I used to do recording sometimes in Philadelphia. Okay. Different places. Um, Well, with this situation that just occurred, it reminded me with this situation with troop uh, increasing, uh, being increased rather in uh, in the Middle East, and uh, also with all the saber rattling that's going on with Iran and Syria. It reminded me back uh, in April of 1970. When um, you know, I was a freshman in college, and I was insulated from the draft because I had a one S being a student. Um, but I mean, I still watched things, and they were making less and less sense, and it was really making me uncomfortable because I wanted it real simple. You know, the United States is always right. Let's go. Yeah. You know. Um, but Nixon in April started talking about uh, gradual uh, troop um, withdrawals from the southeast, uh, from Southeast Asia. And that was fine, it's good. It, it, it really, I think, brought some calm to campuses and some relief. And then, of course, in the first few days of May, we come to find out that there was a full-blown invasion into Cambodia, which was the genesis for uh, Kent State, uh, Jackson State, uh, even Ohio State, where they at least uh, averted any kind of uh, uh, shooting and, and deaths. But, you know, I, I said it back then, I'm going, you know, this is not making sense to me. This is like the logic of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. You're gonna you're gonna bring troops out, so you send more in. Now I think you know where I'm going. Yeah. Bush on one hand says, yeah, we'll have withdrawals, and then he says, well, we're going to increase the troop allotment. And it, to me, this is just like what Orwell was trying to say with how people will embrace what seems to be paradoxes and call it logic. Yeah, double think. Yeah. And uh, and and so as you look at this. Uh, do you think that in 60 or 90 days, as we have been somewhat promised, that we will see uh, a change in the environment over in the Middle East and in um, Johnny Wilkin marching home? No, there's no way under the sun. This is a long-term haul, and uh, I watched some British programs on this, too, and they're taking, this is all guys who are up in the military, 
And now Britain, remember, was in Iraq for almost 40 years. Yep. And uh, they, they, they all said the same thing, that there's no way uh, that the U.S. could possibly dominate the Middle East, including Iraq, uh, and, and get out under 30 years. You know, I don't believe for one moment that the United States has, has uh, ever been really free no. from uh, the crown. How, whatever you decide that to be, and it's probably the city of London, I would assume. But, yeah, go ahead. It's no. a, and more, actually. It's a much more intriguing story. Yeah. Well, I mean, can we look at the city of London, and I'll get back to where we're going. Can we look at the city of London as a sort of a, a, a D.C. of sorts at, at here, except, of course, the people in D.C. don't make, you know, they don't make the rules. They, they do in Midtown Manhattan and Chicago and other places. But is the city of London all as it's said to be, and that is a private, almost Vatican-like uh, city-state to itself? It's a city-state, basically. It's got a sovereign right on its own. And sure enough, the Queen must get permission to come into the actual central part, the, the, the London proper, right. the city, uh, where all the banks are. The, the four main banks are on the, are face each other, and uh, there's also an obelisk there they brought over from Egypt in the middle, and uh, it's next to the Thames River, so you have you have the obelisk overlooking the water, the the fire and the water, the male, the female, the Jack and Boaz, all that stuff. It's, it's highly occultic, with its own sovereign powers. Yeah. Well, I've always felt that um, we have been wagged, and that Rhodes did get his wish, basically making the United States military the muscle for Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, you know, coming over. To uh, to join two continental wars, which really had nothing to do with the United States, and people kept saying to me, "Well, Britain was our ally." It's like, yeah, what do they do for us lately? Mm-hmm. And I can't figure it out. I mean, they're our ally. When? When do they ever do anything for us? We fought them back, you know, 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. They run the banking and everything else. So why? We're their ally. Well, anyway, it's good that you mention this because apparently, um, and tell me about your sense of this history. That in the 20th century, uh, when the Zionist movement seemed to really uh, gain strength. And uh, perhaps um, uh, motivate uh, the British military and government to get down into the Middle East, to cobble it up, as you kind of mentioned just before. Uh, and then they stay there, uh, and the place really never has been stable. Now I'm looking at this, and it's still as unstable as it was back at the beginning of the 20th century. And lo and behold, who's over there with most of the, uh, the troop uh, um, numbers? And it's the United States. Yes. I mean, are we looking at another situation of WAG, the U.S. military, uh, at the uh, behest of, shall we say, the Vatican and uh, the city of London? Uh, there's no doubt. You see, <clears throat> I think it was um, Rudyard Kipling who wrote the poem about uh, the white man's burden. Yep. This was an occultic Masonic uh, poem. Uh, meant for Masons, and that's why he stood on the Senate. He was brought over to the Senate floor, and he, and he read it to the Senate. And that was the first time it was read publicly. It was addressed to them, basically. And so we, he said, we hand the torch over to you, because the United States, it was agreed amongst the Templar lodges in London and the ones over in the U.S., that they would take over the role that, that the old Templars had taken in, in the policing the world. And out of that came the, the NATO pact, we know that, eventually called it NATO. And uh, that's what ref- uh, Margaret Thatcher and other uh, prime ministers kept referring to when they said that the United States and Britain 
uh, have a special um, relationship. They never elaborated and said what they meant by that, but what they meant was a secret pact. Uh, it's a special relationship. That's all. The, the, that's how they refer to it. And it's an agenda and a secret pact. Uh, and this is, a, this is agreed upon that the U.S. is the authorized policeman of the world for the moment. Because after that, they've agreed that China will then should take over. Yeah, that's that's another interesting point as it relates to even this situation. And before I go back there, and uh, and uh, and I want to talk about Brzezinski because I've always considered him one of the mouthpieces that tells us what's going to happen before it happens. But also up in the city of London, I think that is also where the original inns of court are. Is that correct? Yes. You see, in London. And people read so much nonsense put out by the Knights Templars, the present modern-day ones, to cover their tracks. But the Knights Templars were never uh, persecuted in England. They were given a form of amnesty. And they had to, the king had to, because the Templars, all the crown jewels and all the treasury were in the hands of the Templars. They were the bankers at that time. Uh, it was the Knights Templars who brought out the first international banking system and used checks uh, our money orders in, in lieu of gold. So they were they were the international bankers from London all the way through Europe. They had banks and all the way into the Middle East. Mm-hmm. They also owned the trade routes. They also patrolled the trade routes, and they also had all the the hostels on the way for all the the, the pilgrims and so on. Uh, this is a huge enterprise. They were also the largest landowners in the whole of Europe because each widow uh, was encouraged to leave in her will all of her uh, the land to the Knights Templars. And so they were taking over vast amounts of territory. Uh, they were taking over all raw supplies, etc. Something that the New World Order is doing today. Mm. But the British government was based on t- uh, the foundations of the Templars. And that's why you have a Chancellor of the H. Checker which, the, which uh, is still the title of the head um, Templar who dealt with debt and, and credit. Um, that's the British uh, Treasury, uh, the man in charge of the Treasury is called mm-hmm. the H. Checker. The checkerboard floor being that which they did their debt and credit on, they moved these, these checks around, these, um, just like a chess, basically. They moved their, their debt and their credit around on an outside board. And you can visit it today, it's still there. Well, um, somebody once said to me, and I think he makes a good point, that Quigley was allowed to go on about Rhodes and the Round Table, and then, of course, Milner's Kindergarten Group and such. Uh, and uh, the gentleman was suspicious that if we knew that much about it, were we, in fact, intended to look at that and that alone? Now, I believe that's true. I believe also when he said, uh, when Quigley said some of his galleys were excised, never to be put in the complete uh, tragedy and hope. That also might have been a little bit of window dressing, too, to make us think, oh, there really is something here. But I say this because of that really what I consider a very curious and peculiar group called the Pilgrim Society, which is an uh, Anglo-American society, if you will, started in the first decade of the 20th century, and you never, ever heard a thing about them. Uh Now, the the reason I bring it up is because in a book that was a pretty sanitized... um, authorized biography of the, of the group um, when woman's name is M. Pimlot Baker or something like that uh, in the back they have uh, the list of dignitaries that have uh, been feeded if you will over in Britain 
And they go on with a couple of lines of description most times. But what's interesting is when there is something held at uh, the middle court, uh, and it might be one other one, uh, nothing is said. Mm-hmm. There's not, no idea the theme of the meeting or anything. It's just, you know, so-and-so, middle court. Yeah. And I, I just find that interesting. So I'm wondering why one hand has the puppet that shows us Rhodes and Milner and, you know, all those, the Fabian Socialists, the Coefficient Club. Are, are we really looking at the, at the movers and shakers uh, under the table, which would be the Pilgrim Society? What do you think about that? It's even deeper than the Pilgrim Society. It's much older. Um, the United States brought a group in early on and they landed in, on the Mayflower. The flower of May is their big day of Mayflower. Right. It's a day of, of, of labor, labor day. Yep. And it's a flower, of course, uh, in high occultic circles. No, no coincidence there whatsoever. They, they came, they left from Dover, which is the Dove, you see. And um, they landed at Plymouth, and Plymouth Rock, well, it means many mouths. Because in the old religion, many mouths put it all together, <laughs> the prophets. Uh, and those people, many of them had an ancestry going back through rebellion after rebellion, uh, all the way to the Cathars and the Albigensians. Now, the Albigensians and the Cathars were a form of a lay organization set up but run on the principles of the Knights Templars. And they were persecuted by the Catholic Church. The last yeah. crusade was against them, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, they had tremendous wealth accumulated. They had their own banking system and their own banks. They had almost a parallel religion in some respects to the Catholic Church. And they also took confessions, which was mandatory at the end for you to get into the next phase. They believed that Satan was in rule, uh, charge of this world. And through their own efforts, ultimately, they would conquer the world. Uh, now, that's the same terminology you'll read all the way up through Albert Pike's books of uh, we shall become the masters over the masters of the world by even playing the stock market and taking over. Mm-hmm. It's the same groups over and over and over, and many of these people came in under the guise of the Puritans. And they, those families, those very wealthy families, uh, who still intermarry are still running the country today. Uh, and, and, and this is where I was going to go about running this country and going back as far as the 17th century and the first settlements here. Well, but one thing, uh, I'm not really tracked this, but, uh, you know, we know that, that Masonry had a headquarters in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, on the uh, 33rd parallel. That's right. Now, we know that that American headquarters has uh, since been moved. I would assume it's the extension of what Pike started, and that is uh, right on the southern banks of the Potomac, mm-hmm. on the Virginia side of the river. Uh, and if you're traveling on 95, if you look westward, you can't mistake the building. It looks like a Washington Monument turned into office buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can look at that as somewhat the, uh, the headquarters. And they also brought somebody out to speak to... Uh, the legend, supposedly, uh, and the truth about Freemasonry. Charlie Gibson asked the tough questions you can imagine, and uh, and this was also at the time when they first came out with the movie, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Now, on uh, uh, in in Europe, I never do hear much about the headquarters, say, for the Scottish Rite or the York Rite. Uh, are there such things? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, is it in Edinburgh or something, or Edinburgh? No, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry was not Scottish at all. That's just the beauty of their camouflage. Uh, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, which was the one at Charleston, Virginia, the pipe that's the right, project, right, mm-hmm. was one of the more re- recent additions, and it came in uh, from France. And it, it was given the charter to exist by the French Grand Orient Lodge, not from Scotland at all. In fact, there were no Scottish Rite Freemasons in Scotland at that time. Um, the first Scottish Rite Freemasons were in the U.S. Oh, really? Uh-huh. All right. Well, then, should I assume then that the York Rite is an older one? The York Rite is, is the, the the Grand Lodge of England. Yeah. Okay. And this is how this thing works. See, we got to understand something in, in monasteries and how monasteries operated. Uh, uh, they were given charters by the, the Vatican to have uh, a monastery, a brotherhood. And sometimes they would specialize in a particular area. So the Dominicans, for instance, they were into law. That was their job, interpreting the law. But they would often charter another splinter group, which would be called something else, to specialize in a different area. So even in the monks, um, you had special specialities, basically, that mm-hmm. were different areas. Well, as no, they graduated into what we now call masonry in a form, many of them. In fact, many of the Knights Templars in Europe, when they were persecuted, mm-hmm. joined the monasteries or created them, in fact, some of them. So... You're looking at a really tangled web here mm-hmm. when it comes to all that. However, they all go back to the Grand Orient of uh, the Grand Lodge of England, which gave out the first Masonic charters, even the one to France. And then France gave it other charters for other ones to exist. But they go around in this circle always back to, to England, to London, to the Grand Lodge of, of England, the York Rite. Uh, I mean, are, are, uh, are the York Rite and the Scottish Rite? High degree Freemasons uh, tied at the hip, or, or are they actually uh, in some opposition? Oh, and in the past, they believed they were in opposition at the lower orders, but at the top, when you've got access to some of their higher books, um, for instance, I've got one passage where two grandmasters, one of each lodge, was brought in and sworn, they swore to each other to oppose each other in public and never to tell the, the, the inferior brothers uh, that they were managing this conflict between them. One, one other element that I've, I've not followed to the point of being able to tie it together or not, um, they say that Weishaupt began the Bavarian Lodge. Uh, was he indeed kicked out of whatever was the, uh, the, tr- the traditional Freemasonry, or, uh, and then whatever happened to the Bavarian Lodge? Well, the Bavarian Lodge spread all through Germany and into France. Uh, it was only one lodge. See, Weishaupt's lodge was only one of many, and uh, what they called them in Germany was the Bienen Orden. That means the orders of the order of the bees, and they had the beehive as a symbol, the ancient beehive, the perfect society, with its class system from the top to the bottom. Uh, it's still used. Even the Mormons copied that for their flag yep. in Utah. Well, it's. Uh, uh, so he was only one branch of Freemasonry. Now, many Masons at the time, especially John Robson from Edinburgh, uh, came out. He had joined the Illuminati, and he wrote a book about it, um, trying to expose it. But you can even read by his own book, he was also trying to cover up 
Freemasonry's impact on the world and the fact that uh, um, the Illuminati branch were only a more radical group of the same same bunch. He was trying to smooth smooth it out and, make, and say that Masons are just you know guys who join clubs. And whereas the Illuminati have actual uh, ambitions, which is, it wasn't true at all that they all had ambitions because they all got orders from the same place. Uh, was that Bavarian Lodge considered radical? It was radical only at the time. See, Masonry at the time had fomented the revolutions. Uh, the Rosicrucians fomented the revolution in England, first of all, the, 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 the English Civil War. And then you had, um, after that, the, they were definitely behind the United States Revolution mm-hmm. of independence, independence. They boast about that in their own books. And they were behind the, the revolution in France. And they had still other revolutions to go. Uh, when Weishaupt was on the go, they wanted to unite uh, Germany into a greater Germany, for instance. However, later on, Napoleon did it for them. Napoleon also being a Mason. So, um, so they've, they've been behind revolutions which tend to amalgamate smaller countries into bigger ones. And ultimately, they were all to be joined together in a union, a world union. Mm-hmm. You find this in the writings of uh, another Freemason who also uh, joined the Illuminati while he was over in France. And that was, that was um, Jefferson Davis. Or Davis, you know, he, uh, Jefferson, sure. sorry. Jefferson wrote about mm-hmm. that. And he said in his own memoirs uh, that the United States would be the embryo, the beginning point for a federated world run by 12 wise men. And hence the story that he accepts, uh, I guess, the plates of the Great Seal of the United States with the uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum. Sure. They all knew. And uh, then in the writings of Benjamin Franklin, uh, which have been published, and you can also go to the originals, which is, is the descendants of his family, the Franklin Institute still have, and see them. And he, he said exactly the same thing. He says, this will be a, a federated world uh, run by 12 wise men. Same thing. All right. Uh I'm going to try to fit this question in, and, and then I, I want to continue along uh, the track that I have in mind. Um, and let me just see here, because uh, I think you might have spoken to this before. Um, the, uh, in fact, he's a, a fellow Canadian. He wanted to know whether or not the Protestant uh, Re- Reformation was kind of, quote, allowed to happen. Um, one, do you believe that to be true? And second, why would that be? The, the Protestant Reformation in England uh, started first, really, with Henry VIII, who uh, wanted divorced because he, he just couldn't get a son. Mm-hmm. His wives were, were infertile, and that's why he had them all beheaded and kept getting new ones. However, he, because he was um, being condemned by the Vatican for remarrying, then he divorced England from the Vatican, kept all the same rights, called it the Anglican Church. And um, and yet that was, this, that was also called the first Protestant church. They protested. It wasn't until Cromwell came along, really, where the Presbyterian uh, groups were in action and the Puritans uh, were on the go. Um, and they were funded by the banks in the Holland at the time. That the Roundheads took over and, and really started the ball rolling towards this whole Protestant-type thing. And it, there's so many schisms of it now, it's just unbelievable. But, but um, 
it was allowed to happen to an extent as, as long as they gave uh, fans to England uh, they didn't care really which which religion they were except for Catholic they did not like Roman Catholicism and that's why from the days of Queen Elizabeth I the first openly Rosicrucian Masonic court um, they, they settled in um, uh, Presbyterians really uh, from, from Scotland into Ireland to dominate Ireland, which was primarily a Catholic country. So, the, and, that, and it's still in the books today that a, a royalty of England cannot marry uh, a, a Catholic. Um, <clears throat> there is some uh, information to the effect that Rosicrucianism might have had uh, something to do with Luther's Reformation. Uh, you have anything on that? Uh, I've no doubt it helped it along. Uh, you got to remember that, that Luther was a Rosicrucian. His family crest are three roses and crosses, you know. And, well, mm. and uh, so he was allowed to do what he did. And at the same time, the Vatican... See, the Vatican itself runs by the old mystery religion. Uh, you can see it in all of its architecture and its rites and rituals. If you know what you're looking at, you're seeing the... the amalgamation of all the old mystery religions that existed 2,000 years ago in the Middle East brought together under one. That's why it's the universal church. Mm -hmm. It took all those religions in. Mm -hmm. And um, they knew at the top uh, that you can only hold power uh, ultimately by causing conflict and even giving yourself an enemy. An enemy makes those who are ready to leave your group actually come back and be even, even tighter with you. It draws people mm -hmm. together. And so they had to have conflict, and so they gave their antithesis, their, the Protestant sect out there. Because Luther was, remember, uh, a Catholic priest. Well, one of the things that I grew up with, uh, seeing but never seeing, uh, I was uh, a Lutheran. Uh -huh. And um, I never really could figure out, and nor did I ask, why the, uh, the, pro the Lutheran symbol of course, which is not only in the churches and the stained glass windows, but on the bulletins you get each week, uh, bore the Red Cross. Yeah. I mean, I just never, you know, I just didn't ask. I'm sitting here running, with my nose running, and it's like, okay, I guess that makes some kind of sense. Mm -hmm. But that might be um, indicative, symbolically, yeah. of the involvement of Rosicrucianism. Oh, there's no doubt. In fact, in the, the 200 top Freemasons published by the Masonic Society in, in the U.S., uh, they have the founders in the United States of all the major religions, and that the man who founded Lutherism in the United States was a 33rd degree Freemason. We're speaking with Alan Watt uh, as we get up to uh, the bottom of the hour on the grassy knoll. Uh, Alan, uh, the website is cuttingthroughthematrix.org. Uh, I have that right? Dot uh, com. Dot com, okay. I, now I got it called up. Um, <clears throat> now you also, in your own right, um, kind of give. Uh, um, radio interviews as well. Now, are you going, does this happen like every other day or a couple times a week, or how does the format run? Uh, I'm on Swedish radio every every month. I'll be on this Sunday, and um, that's Red Ice Radio. Okay. And um, I've been on lots of radio stations in the past that were limited in such a way, or I'm limited because the only outlets that were allowed for the public and I often wonder why and I know why for for speaking out about what's going on the only outlets in the United States were shortwave radio for many years even though that it was published in 
the Toronto Star here that the CIA controlled the shortwave radio at the beginning to use Christian groups to fight communism as a front, as basically front propaganda. But I don't think they ever let go, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I can easily cut my own throat by going on some of the ultra-fundamental Christian shows um, by sticking to what I say rather than trying to please the, the hosts. I know I'm doing it, well, I'm doing it. I speak out against gold and silver, too, and all the other what I see as con games. I could be in many, many more shows if I played the game, but I can't play mm-hmm. the game, you know. And, um, and it's the same with some of the, the, the real fundamental Christian shows. They steer their public for an hour but of what's happening, and then they leave them at the end saying, but don't worry, it's an all in God's hands, God's in control. So the listeners are sort of punch drunk. They're terrified of the events that have just been described. And at the same time, uh, they're just hoping this deity will spare them. Uh, to me, that's a form of mind control. But that's, these are the only avenues that the, the public were given since the 1950s or 60s. Well, you know, we both spoke earlier in the month. Uh, I guess um, I'm kind of thick-headed, uh, but I also am naive and sometimes a little too optimistic, believe it or not. But it started to uh, dawn on me also that the outlets that are allowed to this day, the networks, um, we would call patriot networks, are, and even these 9-11 truth movements, which now uh, we're shining a lot of light on, uh, were, were, if they were not constructed for the very purpose of infiltration and the uh, imposition of other agendas, certainly... Yeah, we're going to be corrupted, and that, and that, like we said yesterday with the the Utigans for 9/11 Truth, that when you have a group of, of human beings, you're going to have corruption. I mean, whatever large or small, you, you got to realize that I get a lot of information that comes into me about some of the, the big leaders that's been promoted for the Patriots movement. I've had daughters of, well, I had a daughter of one major one who's still on phone me weekly and, and fill me in and a lot of stuff um, I, I've had people who back another big superstar and I get all the information on what's really going on there and, and there are power battles and struggles over money and territory and products and all. it's business, it's huge business you know, mm-hmm. but it's also mind control because they're, they're very selective in what they tell the people yep um, I could go on and on about that off the air maybe one day, but you'd be amazed at the relatives who phone me and tell me. Well, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mind doing that only because it, it would confirm probably what a lot of what I have yet only to call uh, suspicions and suppositions. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever, from wherever I hear also. So one day I'd like to compare notes and just figure out whether or not what I call the bones as I get about a lot of stuff is in fact correct. Yes, well, I get it from the relatives themselves. <laughs> um, I, I just, it didn't blow me away at all, because I could see through them for sure. And I know who's backing them. Uh, and it's the top. Right? They always give their readers to us, always. And they have no problem generally with funding. Um, oh, you would know that by the, t- <laughs> you would know that by the, by how much they ask for and, and how often. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so the Patriot game is an old, old business because it, it was the same thing in all, prior to all the revolutions. You found Masons who were uh, also collecting data on members to see who were too radical. The radical ones who really believed in their cause, 
they knew would rebel when they'd taken over and found out they'd gone off in a different direction, which was always the case. And so they, they rounded them up uh, because they had them on their membership list. They knew who they were. The communists did the same thing. They got lists of all the ones who had helped to bring them to power, the Bolsheviks. Sure. And uh, they were all Masonic groups. And they knew they would not go along with the agenda when it suddenly did a right turn. And they rounded them up because they had all the members' lists and just rubbed them out. Uh, this is an old technique. Um, so, yeah, they still give us our leaders yet today who are sworn to secrecy. One of the greatest examples of that was Colonel Bogreitz. Now, Colonel Bogreitz, we kept hearing all this hoopla about the most decorated Vietnam War veteran, yada, yada. And they gave him his own radio station. He was on for years on the shortwave Patriot radio stations, boring the hell out of people toward me. Uh, but the same old stories in Vietnam, and he wishes it was still going on, and he lived during that, and it's the only time he was alive. And um, right after 9-11, now he'd gone off the air only about a month or so before 9-11 happened, after being on for a stint for four and a half, five years. And on television in Canada, major television, they showed a picture the day after 9-11 with him on the congressional steps, obviously you know, all arranged. Mm -hmm. And the camera said, you know, Colonel Bogreitz, you're the most decorated yadi yan. you worked at the Pentagon. This is the man, remember, who even said on the shortwave he had back hip, uh, back pocket orders or hip pocket orders from the Pentagon when he left. And he called everybody brother, by the way, masonry. Um, he said on the, the, the Pentagon or the congressional steps, when he was asked who he thought was behind the bombing on 9-11, he says probably those paranoid shortwave radio listeners who believe in black helicopters. This is the man who'd been leading that at one of the biggest shows yep. for four and a half years and just left them. Yep. This man was a complete provocateur. Yeah. Uh, we got one uh, comment. And folks, again, if you want to send stuff in, visigoth at hotmail.com. If you're going to use MSN. I am service. It's Visigoth. And here's a statement uh, that I'll bounce off you. It said, um, the alternative movement was doomed like any other movement from the start. Things can only move one person at a time. You must, uh, you move down the right path as an individual, and someone might take notice and start moving in the same direction. A movement infers leadership, and leadership infers followers, and followers don't think for themselves, and people who don't think for themselves can't make things move. Mm -hmm. um, I think you probably stated that pretty well. Uh, sure. sure. Yeah. All right, now getting back to the uh, chronology of the history of things, uh, before I move this down to uh, what later became the United States, we do have another question for you. It said, uh, do you believe uh, Knights Templar Henry Sinclair uh, did in fact come to Nova Scotia in 1398 and with the Grail? Well, the Grail is a bit of an, uh, an exoteric uh, myth. There's an esoteric grail and the exoteric for the public. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff that the, the, the exoteric is what all the writers, the authorized writers, write about and keep everybody going off in circles. Um, the grail was part of a ritual, and the grail was the bloody bowl where high templars were emasculated on reaching a certain degree and joined the elders because then they could think clearly without distractions you might say and you find the key of that in even the writing of uh, King Arthur and his round table 
um, after it was the sun the round table with the zodiacal members it's the whole story over and over but uh, when, when they were coming out of the, 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 the hall a lodge meeting you know, the round hall again mm-hmm. of the Templars um, one of them comes out and um, one of the knights is approached by a lady but before the knight there's another procession before him a man carrying the bowl with a, covered with a cloth and the, the lady says would you like to bed sire and she was offering to go to bed with him and he said no for I have been wounded in the side now in those days it's in the Old Testament too that they used the term the side when they meant the genitals right that's why you know Jacob swears on his father's uh, thigh it's the genitals they held uh, the circumcised penis that was a sign of recognition uh, they swore on their offspring that's what they mean by their family jewels those become and down to the seventh generation I think it is and, and that was a traditional Arab it's still used in some of the Arab countries today that very gesture where you, you actually hold you put your hand under and you hold the genitals and you swear an oath of your allegiance to your lord that's done, still done today in some Semitic peoples so um, in that the King Arthur legend is part of the rite of the emasculation process to, to get, get up into the elder uh, realm uh, and, and that's what that meant uh, <clears throat> to me uh, the Holy Grail uh, the Shroud of Turin uh, the Spear whatever to me you know I, these these don't mean anything to me you know it, I, I hate this a complete farce actually yeah, I mean I was going to say you know it's foolish people to look for signs and wonders like that well actually and the, actual, the, the history books of France are fascinating because they have a lot of the day to day journals kept by the monks who accompanied the Templars and the, all the other crusaders who went across to the the Middle East and they were, at one time they were, they, were, they, were, they were flagging so much they were, they were losing so many men the morale was down all the rest of it and to get them to, to take uh, Jerusalem um, this particular monk just happened to have a dream and, and that uh, this spear was buried under the flagstones uh, of this particular church over there and lo and behold they dug up where he said and they found this bright new shiny spear <laughs> and that was the beginning of the whole thing it was a, a, a propaganda technique used in the Middle Ages to, to motivate them back into action. Um, real quick, one of the things I find that kind of fit that description somewhat in the things that have transpired since 9-11, um, whether it's Katrina, whether it's uh, Ground Zero or whatever, people keep finding Bibles that are mysteriously always open to very um, appropriate passages. Mm-hmm. You know, and even that one that was supposedly found in an Irish bog or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. Anyway, uh, we talked about Rosicrucianism as it uh, was applied in uh, Europe, and now it comes to the settlements, I guess the pre-colonies, if you will. And I think about the influence of Bacon and his idea of a new Atlantis and a new world, and here we go. Now, we have all been fed, as you all know, uh, that everybody who came over uh, uh, were very Christian or or very spiritual. And they may have been spiritual, but it might not have been Christianity we're thinking about. Absolutely. All right. So, So along with the supposed... And, and necessarily present um, a, a, a Christianic uh, em- emphasis or influence there is also something on the other side and can we assume or do we know for a fact that many of the settlements were started by Rosicrucians oh there's no doubt it's well documented in the old books uh, even in the English site 
uh, of the Rosicrucian movements flowing through Europe to England and embarking for the Americas. Uh, and many of them, uh, at least externally, had religious sites to them under guises of Christianity of various forms. But as I say, you can trace many of their beliefs back to the Albigensians and the Cathars. Um, you see, there was a, even the, the Puritans, when they came across, which were part of this group, with a, a history going back to the persecution of the Catholic Church towards them, uh, where they set, you know, whole legions of crusaders against them to wipe them out. They, and they weren't all wiped out. Mm-hmm. They eventually, down through the ages, became the Puritans with their own religion and were very, very, very wealthy people. And I'm sure, well, this is traceable in fact, many of the, the present-day leading families, the dynasties in the United States, um, still are descended from those particular families. Now, the Puritans themselves believed, because of their religion, they were the new um, chosen people, God's chosen people. The new Jews, they sometimes called themselves. Mm-hmm. And they had allegiance to other specific the Jewry in the world. Uh, to regain the Holy Land uh, again with this nice temporal connection and that would be fulfilling God's duty and uh, I believe the two radical uh, elite groups on both sides of that are still running the show today Uh, as we see um, going through the decades into another century uh, am I right to say that Rosicrucianism uh, perhaps everywhere but certainly in the United States was absorbed by uh, Freemasonry? Uh, it was Freemasonry. In fact, Freemasonry were created as a, as a further branch of Rosicrucianism. Okay. okay. Yeah, free, free, uh, Freemasonry came out of Rosicrucianism. They created it for the middle classes. And uh, as all things, as all religions do have, there's always the public version where they give you even uh, a, a, a divergent Rosicrucianism where you can send away for the silly little books that tell you nothing at all. <laughs> but then there's a real group um, that Clymer had. Now, Clymer, and I think it was 1906, 1908, had an international convention of Freemasonry. Now, Clymer was the head of the Rosicrucians. And he said right there, as he read off his speech, he says, on behalf of the Rosicrucians, who have summoned, and they named off the the Freemasonic orders, the Grand Lodge of England, the the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, they went through all the different branches, and the the female branches. He said that we, the Rosicrucians, have summoned to this convention, and they came. So that tells you who was at the the top. Well, now we see that influence here, uh, being raised up... (coughs) as the new world <clears throat> and where I'm going with this later on I mean I, I have to move along I know I, we have also more questions uh, you know uh, make a long story short there was a uh, a talk show host in New York are you familiar with the, the late Gene Shepard no alright he was just a great storyteller and he also wrote some great books uh, the Christmas stories based on it uh, one of them he also wrote something called uh, In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash and in it he talks about uh, being prodded by his friend, they're both teenagers, about going out on a blind date with his friend's girlfriend's friend. And he's he's just dragging his feet, no way, because you know how blind dates work out, da 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 da. And he goes on and on. Then he gets in a movie theater, and this, this, this young lady is absolutely, you know, gorgeous. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then <laughs> he goes,
surprise, and then it dawned on me that I was the blind date. Oh, okay. So the reason I'm saying this is, is I've been looking around the last six, seven years at what's going on, about how much we don't like the New World Order, and it's always someplace else geographically, and it's always somebody else. Well, one day I said to myself, we are the New World Order. Yes. And this is where I'm going with it. I'm wondering if we have been fatted and taken good care of, like a prize possession or horse or prize fighter, uh, for a certain purpose that is now being unveiled. And I go back now to the point when you said about the York right, and now I'm laughing because how long did I live across the river from New York? Yeah. And why did they call that first obelisk, later to be followed by the Chrysler Building, but that first somewhat obelisk, the Empire State Building, and why is New York the Empire State? Yes, well, let's go back even further. Okay. You'll find when the initial Roman invasion, uh, now it's pre-Christian, invasion of England happened, the Romans first made their headquarters in York, in England, Mm -hmm. not London. And York, you'll still see the baths of York, they call them, where they even had central heating and everything, quite an amazing setup, and hot running water. And, and all the rest of it, that was also the, the, the banking system which the Romans brought in with them in York. Now, York, you'll notice by Hamlet and Shakespeare, uh, where Hamlet uh, is passing the graveyard and the sexton uh, digs up uh, an old friend, and, and it was, uh, York, it was York, the, the, the Duke of York. And he says, he said, alas, poor Yorick. That's how they used to pronounce it, Yorick. Okay. Uh, I knew him well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, a man of uh, infinite jest and all that. Well, Yorick in old England was a, a synonym for a skull. The skull. You see? Uh-huh. And we know that out of that came the skull and bones, which was also the pirate flag of Queen Elizabeth's navy when they plundered the seas. Um, so it, it was a skull... Uh, your five senses are, are head in, in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. That's another meaning of the five points of masonry. Um, they're in your, in your head. The upper room sits on 33 steps of the spine. The upper room is your skull. So you go up into the upper room as you descend. Uh, you ascend the degrees. It's also in Dante's Inferno, if you read it carefully, how he gets out of hell by climbing up all the, the 33 steps. But, it, but it's, uh, it's all through everything that we know, but most people don't realize what they're talking about. So York was a skull in one, at, at one point. However, York, the Romans made the capital of a place which they called Hebericum. And that's in the old maps, if you look at it. Where is this? They, they did bring uh, bankers with them who were the quarter masters for the army. They looked after the munitions, the credit and debt system which ran the Roman army. And the, the Roman army, the first thing they did was to conquer the people, introduce money so they could tax it back from them and labor. And this was dealt by uh, the bankers of York in, in, the, in the county or area of Hebericum. All right, I'm going to make one last statement, and then I want to get to the questions and comments. And there's something else about events in the United States and and how they may have impacted us, and they were not necessarily what they seemed to be, of course, as recorded in our history books. But, you know, I had a laugh because one time Harry and I, uh, just kicking around some thoughts, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know what, we look at what Rhodes wanted to do with the Federation 
say, of uh, South uh, Africa and Federal East Australia, much like Canada, too, which when you look at those provinces, they should be countries instead that they're just provinces under one big country. He said, but you know what? He goes, probably the joke is on us because once we went into a United States of America, those 13 colonies later become states. What was that? It was a federation. Yeah. So here we are, you know, opposing all the other federations and the final one, if you will. And in essence, they ran it by us first. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You walk along the borders of the United States and Canada, and the last treaty that was signed uh, to reestablish for good the borders was, sent, was done by a Lord Rothschild. He was sent over by the British Crown. And he took charge of that. There was a high Masonic agreement made between the both sides. And if you walk along the, the borders of the U.S. and Canada, you'll come across obelisks every mile or so. That's the symbol of Freemasonry on both sides. Uh-huh. Yeah, these stone obelisks, maybe six foot, eight foot tall. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how they marked the border. It was a, oh. a Masonic agreement from the beginning. You jump from that Masonic agreement to another thing that happened back to a climbers convention in the early 1900s uh-huh. the International Masonic Association under Rosicrucianism and the whole speech apart from the opening of the Great Center in Pennsylvania um, which now gives out all the so-called philosophical books of Freemasonry uh, the whole speech was about the reunification of the Americas mm-hmm. and he said our goal as Freemasons is to work strivingly towards our goal of reuniting the eagle of the Mexico with the eagle of the United States. Probably just a coincidence. Yeah, and every major politician was there because <laughs> they're all Masons. Uh, the heads of schooling departments was there. Everybody who shapes your culture was at that meeting. Well, you know, you heard me kind of have an epiphany here. Uh, V8 slap upside the head, but now I remember. Uh, both in Vermont, uh, hiking, uh, also, uh, right across the Jersey border in New York, where there's a lot of great trails, what's often been left around, and, and nobody pays attention to it, just like I didn't, mm-hmm. and that is you do have some uh, markers uh, or um, mile markers, uh, and this is this is no longer on the highways; these are on back paths and such, and they're all they're all obelisks. They're all different. <laughs> from east to west coast, you oh. Beautiful. All right, now. Um, Let's go to some of the questions. Uh, why are uh, uh, they, whoever they is, right, storing everyone's DNA information in huge databases, supercomputers? Uh, because if they're going the I'll, the I'll do Huxley route, which they told us they would do in many other writings, of a eugenics, where the inferior types ultimately will no longer be allowed to breed. Right. That's one of the main reasons. It's not just ID. ID does, actually means ideal design, by the way, intelligent design. They want to give us an intelligent design rather than this, this haphazard way of just picking your own mate. Oh, yeah. So yeah. They're collecting it all because in the future, before they get to the complete cloning stage, uh, they will tell you who will marry, who will not, or at least who will breed. It's not the marriage is important, it's who will be allowed to breed. This is a eugenics program. And, and the Freemasonry is rampant through all of its writings with eugenics and the need to marry uh, or be matched up with intelligence for intelligence. In fact, as you go up the degrees of Masonry, 
when the Grand Master decides that you're going to get taken further, you will be introduced to your wife. And if you catch on, you, you'll obey. When you get a, a little um, suggestion from the Master who tells you she would be a perfect wife for you, that's an order. You're getting lit, and that wife will have a genealogy going back mm-hmm. because the genes of, of what they claim are the higher uh, inbred groups are in the wife. And you, you marry her as the offspring thereafter. Masonry itself, higher masonry, is a eugenics program. It's all through the writings. Although Francis Galton is attached to a lot of this, and I think probably incorrectly, because I don't think he was near as radical as Wells and uh, even George Bernard Shaw, on Galton.org there is uh, uh, transcripts of that famous uh, meeting in which basically Wells told Galton he was a pussy, excuse me, and that he was into negative eugenics or, or depopulation, and Shaw felt, you know, the heck with marriage. I mean, this is so stupid. You know, let's just get two people who are, are good to mate and, uh, and let that happen, and this is what you're talking about. Yeah. And Galton.org does uh, have on it um, the transcripts of that speech, which if you can read between the lines, you realize that something happened there that day. Oh, it happened, but it's such an interesting, too, that, see, George Bernard Shaw was the product of, of a special mating of a very high noble mason with the, with the wife. Uh, Shaw never met his father. He was, he was created to be what he was. His father was a great writer, too. Uh, and, and that was also allowed. You go back to Benjamin Franklin in the Dashwood's Hellfire Club. Now, they had a, 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 a whorehouse attached to the Hellfire Club in Highway right. in England. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is a, a tenant, too, I've read through many of the old Masonic books, because they did have these uh, whorehouses on the claim that a man must have his sexual release to, to remain healthy mentally. But there was more to it. If you were a higher mason, these were ordinary whorehouses. The women in them had been had been bred over generations by high Freemasons, and so it wasn't an ordinary whorehouse. And only if you had fulfilled a duty towards the great work, like Franklin, were you allowed to mate with one of those women. And at the time that Benjamin Franklin was there, um, he was allowed to mate with one of them. And you never guess who it was, um, Madame Bouvier. Yeah, um, that's which was the which was the uh-huh. predecessor in the same lineage of, of Jacqueline Kennedy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The two two of the sisters are still alive today of the of the direct movie line in France. So these are these were special uh, women who were reared and and, and bred um, by eugenics uh, mm-hmm. programs already on the go, and the offspring of a high mason you were given the honor to meet with her for the offspring. That was a high honor. Uh, and if um, it's it, uh, you, you've read uh, James uh, Shelby Downard, right? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, because he, t- he says the same thing about Bouvier, but he adds another one, too, which is all in that bloodline, as it all turned out on this side of the uh, pond, and that was Raswell. Uh, yeah, there was also another one, too. It was Lyndon Bain Johnson. Uh, the Bain family, the McBain family, are Bain, also right. to the Bouvier, and they also go all the way back to Macbeth. You know? So we might have a picture there of cousins when uh, LBJ was on uh, Air Force One taking the uh, oath. Mm-hmm. And next to him was his cousin, Jacqueline. Yes. All right. I'm gonna, if I go a little long, I will just to get these in, if you'll, if you'll bear with me. Um, is that okay with you? We, we go over a little? Uh-huh. All right. Let me get to um, one that might be a little bit more compact to answer. Uh, okay. It says, uh, what's your take on vegetarianism slash veganism and animal suffering? Um, 
the animal suffering, there's no doubt about it. I mean, animals today are, are, are just bred as a uh, a commodity and killed in the same way. Um, here's the problem, too. You found some of the higher Freemasons all become vegetarians. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Alvin Tolther in his book The Third Way where fascism is to merge with communism for the new world order this is the book that Newt Gingrich handed out on the congressional steps to every congress member in there Tolther said the world we are creating for the new world order will be vegetarian only and he said it must be so he doesn't tell, say why now when you realize that a lot of Freemasonry most of it is taken from ancient Hinduism the Brahmins of India kept millions of people subjugated uh, with, uh, with, uh, with basically withholding certain foods from them and, and making sure the religion taught them vegetarianism. Um, we find the nobility of England used the same techniques on the peasantry for centuries since the Norman invasion. Um, they restricted the diets, they, were, they, they had very little meat, uh, their IQ was down, their growth was stunted. Uh, when you make a vegetarian society, you also make a very manipulatable, easily controlled society. That, that, that's just time-tested with history uh, over and over again. Now, here's the thing, too. Since the big boys, the big five got together, Monsanto and... Um, yeah, Conagra. Right, Cargill. And yeah. uh, Adam, ADM is Adam, of course, that's why it's ADM, <laughs> took over the earth for growing <laughs> and gave us modified vegetables. They have spliced so many genes yeah. into these particular mm -hmm. plants, not to make them bigger or greener, uh, but it will affect you because these plants are little laboratories that, that produce chemicals and enzymes, and plants have been used for thousands of years to make the biggest effects on changes in the human body. Uh, you can look at opium, for instance. Um, so uh, here you are, they're promoting vegetarianism and at the same time giving you nothing but modified food. Yep. Uh, th there's another agenda behind this and we can't fall into this trap. Well, I'll tell you, um, I had on Jerry Guidetti who uh, uh, breeds heirloom seeds that will go off, uh, you know, which, which has sterile seed. Uh -huh. And I asked her, I said, well, is it possible that the GMO food uh, vegetables are already out there, though they're telling us they're thinking about it? Because i got a tomato that's been lasting about three months. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so, don't forget, we were the last to know that we were already on the, right. the food. Uh, Canada admitted, only because it broke out in Britain, that, that Canadians had been the test guinea pigs yep. mm -hmm. for the modified food for yep. ten years. And it said, this is in the national newspapers in Canada, uh, and, and it said that the government, our wonderful government, had agreed in a secret pact with Monsanto yep. to test this on the general public of Canada. And, and what it, There's no such thing as democracy. We're run by tyrants. And by corporations. Yeah. Clubs. And it's this terrible, ter terrible story about uh, what happened to Percy Schmeisser up there. Oh, yeah. With the, oh, he totally wiped out. Oh, what a, I mean, it, you were hoping for a happy ending. It just did not occur. The judge actually said, and I've got the transcript here, he, he said, I don't care if this stuff blew into your field That's right. or if a bird passed it through its droppings. He says it was on your land, and that's all that the law yeah. mm -hmm. is looking at. That was incredible. So this is an agenda, as we know. Uh, oh, yes, vegetarianism is, is a great... And there's no doubt, I mean, I, I watched a program not long ago 
on the big packers industry, you know that every um, company now is amalgamating, you know, amalgamating, and you have um, only a couple of the packers now run the meat That's right. uh, mm-hmm. of the world, the mm-hmm. whole supply. And there's one out in Canada, and, and this woman said, she said, you know, they, they had no sooner slaughtered the cattle, he said, and uh, it was what she said, and they were cutting it up on the, the conveyor belts on the way out, she says, and the tongues were still moving as they were cutting them. I mean, I, I can't believe, I can believe anything, in, in fact, in this yeah. monetary system. It's the most corrupt anti-life system mm-hmm. you could possibly devise. Uh, we said, uh, he says, regarding culture creation, uh-huh. uh, was the very first underground punk music that was out there really from the grassroots of society? No. No, I, I've been in the studios when they've created some of the movements or the new styles. And I've seen average groups come in with some little piece of, you know, crumpled paper that would have written a song. And then the big boys come in, uh, the real managers and producers, completely rewrite it. Um, you lay down the tracks for the melody, and then they'll go over that, and they'll completely alter that into a different style again. And, and, and they remake the group, you know, uh, promising them they'll have, they'll have a hit. Sometimes they'll tell them you'll have two or three hits, and then you'll fade away. Um, but you keep your mouth shut, you don't tell the public how it's gone. Uh, and we'll get the Rolling Stones magazine to write a lot, a lot of nonsense about you, which the public will believe. Uh-huh. And that's exactly how it works. Uh, culture creation, especially in, on any of those areas, music, art, drama, it, it must be authorized from the top. Uh, <clears throat> with regard to uh, Crowley, uh-huh. uh, basically what was his function in this whole scheme? Well, Crowley was, number one, he was a Freemason to begin with. He came from a, an aristocratic family. In fact, the queen and most of the nobility um, got all their wines and their special speciality wines and rare wines from the Crowley family who owned the biggest store in London. Um, he was uh, attached to the British Secret Service, as it was called then, before it was called MI6, and sent abroad not only to spy, but to get into the upper elites of those mm-hmm. families. Because all these families, you see, are all into high masonry and the occult, so it attracts them. And so you send aristocrats over with a, with a new knowledge, and they come to you, you know, so easily, like flies. And um, so he was taught to preach a new type of occultic Freemasonry, uh, uh, Freemasonry that was to kick off a new world order that would eventually attract the young, combine it with mind-altering drugs, in preparation for what was to come later on, which was the 1960s revolutions. Um, we had somebody on, uh, who I think was being rather disingenuous, uh, from the OTO, who downplayed Crowley's influence and just kind of said he was more about clowning around in theater. We could, uh, we could assume that that wasn't correct, was it? Well, yeah, his job was to go out and, and create mysticism and confusion. You see, the OTO branch um, is a branch of masonry. Masonry pretended for years that it was not, but it's admitted now they couldn't hide it, especially when you have all the photographs of Crowley and his Masonic regalia. Um, so, so no, uh, he was not clowning around. He was a member of the York Rite of England. He was a member of the Scottish Rite. He belonged to different rites all over the planet. 
and, and but his job was to create this new type to get the young into it and especially as I say, to combine it with drugs mind altering experiences which would attract the young and all of that ended up it was, it was geared towards the coming musicians in fact right. and the actors and actresses uh, so it was a speciality branch of masonry for a particular function alright this will be the last one we'll close out on this and I appreciate you staying over it said, uh, now that many of us know that we are part of an ongoing plan in which we cannot escape, what advice can you give as to how to accept this? And secondly, and would you agree that not adopting any of the, quote, belief systems, uh, unquote, is a good way of dealing with and not participating in this long-term plan? Definitely. Um, it's no secret, for instance, that all the religions and the heads of religions are all part of the same club with the same agenda. It's, they're not opposing agendas at all. Uh, whereas the Vatican or the Pope or the Dalai Lama, I've watched the Dalai Lama give Masonic signals and gestures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, they're all high masons at the top. They are the shepherds that lead the flocks. The flocks are a different species, remember. They're the sheep. Um, so, so, yeah, if you follow any religion, you will be led to do the bidding of the ones at the top, and you'll always lose yourself personally at the end, although the, the group at the top will always win. That's the way uh, of it all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Alan, uh, if you don't mind, um, can we do this next month? Sure. I mean, there's other things that I also want to run by with regard to, uh, you know, the way things really are and what we were told they were. Um, CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, that's the website. Uh, and where are you going to be on... Uh, most recently uh, again on Sunday on Red Ice in Sweden okay. alright we'll look forward to it thank you very much for being with us we appreciate it and uh, we'll see you sometime next month okay do right, bye Alan thank you bye, bye now.